Shalom. This is Gary Durashinsky, Congregational Leader of Beth Ariel Messianic Congregation. Thank you for downloading our message. We're delighted to make it available to you through the generous donations of our members and friends at Beth Ariel. We know that many are struggling financially because of the challenges facing our economy, and we do not want financial issues to keep anyone from enjoying our teachings. So please continue to listen in as often as you like. But if our presentations have been beneficial to you, and you are able to provide a financial donation to Beth Ariel, whether large or small, would you prayerfully consider sending a gift in support of our ministry? You can donate online through our website at bethariel.org. That is spelled B-E-T-H-A-R-I-E-L dot org. Also, please remember to pray for us, that we would be responsive to the Lord's guidance as we reach out to the lost sheep of the House of Israel in the greater Los Angeles area. Thank you, and I hope you enjoyed this message. But take a look at these first few verses in the book of Hebrews. We talked a little bit about some of the introductory ideas, but let's look at the verses. Long ago, at many times and in many ways, God spoke to our fathers by the prophets. But in these last days, he has spoken to us by his son, whom he appointed the heir of all things, through whom he also created the world. He is the radiance of the glory of God and the exact imprint of his nature. And he upholds the universe by the word of his power. After making purifications for sin, he sat down at the right hand of the majesty on high, having become as much superior to angels as the name he has inherited is more excellent than theirs. Now that is an incredible mouthful, isn't it? But these are glorious words. And I was reading one commentator. He did not only said they were glorious words, but in the Greek, they are just sonorous. You know, he said, I wish all of us knew Greek and knew Greek well, because this is one of the most masterful statements in all of the Brit Hadashah and all the new covenant words. And in the very opening line, he's telling us how it is that God has mediated his word to us. He's telling us how it is that he has revealed his purposes to us. He's telling us the method by which his revelation was given to us. When he starts out in the very beginning, he says that many times and in many ways, that's a play on words. The two words in Greek are almost identical in nature. They've been translated differently in many times, in many places, in many ways, in many times. But you get the idea. There's a variety of things that occurred that God had utilized to bring his message to us. He tells us, first of all, if you look at this, he says long ago. What he means by long ago is not just in the distant past, but what he means is throughout history. In other words, God has never spoken to us. He's always been speaking to us. There's never been a time when he hasn't spoken. And when he has spoken, he's spoken in a variety of ways and over a period of time that everyone ought to have been hearing it and responding to it. No, no least of which are the Jewish people who are called out uniquely as his chosen people. So he says, for example, that he has spoken in many ways. So what are the ways in which the Lord has spoken to us? When you think about this, he has spoken to us through kings. So you look at the Psalms and you have the king of Israel, David, writing this incredible uh, collection 
of psalms that we not only find encouragement by, but we are drawn to worship the Lord through. So it's been written by kings. You look at Solomon, the book of Proverbs, the Song of Solomon, and Ecclesiastes, written by kings. His word has been communicated to us and written down for us by prophets. Individuals called out by God in an official capacity to speak for God and to write his revelation. He has spoken to us through priests. You know, sometimes we don't remember this, but Moses was of the tribe of Levi. He was not technically a priest in the priestly sense of the word, but he was a Levite. And in that respect, we might think of the first five books of Moses as Levitical in nature. And when you get into the Psalms, we do have a priest that writes a psalm. Kohath is one of the priests that does write for us. So you have prophets, you have kings, you have priests. We also have shepherds. Amos was a shepherd who wrote as a prophetic voice. We have men like Peter who were fishermen. We have a man like Matthew who was a tax collector. We have a man like Luke who was a physician So in many kinds of spheres, through many kinds of individuals with a diversity of backgrounds, he has communicated his revelation to us. But it's not only come to us through different kinds of people, it's come to us through different kinds of mediums. Sometimes God has spoken to us through dreams. Sometimes he has spoken to us through visions. Sometimes he has spoken to us through uh, spontaneous revelations of himself. Sometimes he's spoken to us through angelic visitations in the scripture. Sometimes he has spoken to us through events that went on, such as the Exodus. That was a statement about God's power. It was a statement about God's redemption. It was a statement about God's love and a statement about God's judgment. Sometimes he's spoken to us through institutions like the Levitical priesthood, like the tabernacle, and like the temple. So when the writer says in variety of ways, it wasn't until I sat down and started thinking about all kinds of ways God has spoken. And indeed, he's right in many ways. But he's not only written in many ways and communicated in many ways, but he's also communicated to us over many times and A great deal of history. You know, the scriptures span 1,600 years. Moses lived about 1,500 years before Messiah, and John wrote about 100 years after. That's 1,600 years over which the scriptures have been written. And the distance from which the word of God came forth is also astounding. It was written on three continents. Moses wrote in the Sinai, that's Africa. Paul wrote from Europe, or I should say Macedonia, Corinth, and Ephesus, and Rome. That is Europe. And of course, most of the word of God was written from the land of Israel. That's the Middle East. So we have three continents from which the word of God has come to us and God's revelation has been given to us. 1,500 years, three continents, and three different languages. The Hebrew scriptures are predominantly Hebrew, but it's not exclusively Hebrew. There are portions of it, for example, in the book of Daniel that's written in Aramaic. 
And of course, the New Covenant scriptures are written in Greek. So we have Aramaic, Hebrew, and Greek in a variety of ways over a period of time. And for whatever reason, God did not just dump his revelation on us, but he spaced it out over decades and centuries. In other words, God's revelation to us is progressive. It isn't all at once. It grows and it is added to. So when the prophets or Moses first wrote, he told us a little bit about Messiah. We learn, for example, in Genesis 3.15, he's going to be associated with the woman, with womanhood, unique in the Hebrew scriptures. We learn later on that he would be a descendant of Abraham. We learn later on he's a descendant of Judah. We learn later on that he's a descendant of David. We learn later on that he would be born in Bethlehem. We learn, we learn later on that he would come at a particular time in history before the temple is destroyed. We learn later on what he would do. He would suffer and die for our sins. He would bear the sin of many. A little later, we learn that he will return in glory to reign forever. So we have this progression of revelation as well that spans that time. And the point that the writer is making is that God is speaking. The question is, are we hearing? Are we listening? Are we responding? The issue that he's making is God's speech is clear. It is not something that is hidden from us. He's not speaking to us in some kind of puzzle language that we've got to put the pieces together in order to understand what he's telling us. Each part is significant unto itself, but no part is able to be understood fully without the remaining parts. So it's unfolding to us, but each part is enough to lead us to himself. And therefore, Paul tells us, therefore, there is none that is with, with excuse. We all have opportunity to hear. This is the way the writer begins. He hasn't even gotten in yet. We haven't even gotten past the first five or four words. This is not r- remarkable. That's how great this book is. Now, we can't take the whole, I mean, there's 13 chapters. I don't know how many words are in there, but we could be here like, you know, for decades. And we have to be responsible to look at the whole counsel of God, even though the book of Hebrews might be enough, right? Might be enough. But check this out. Not only does he tell us the methods by which he presented uh, his word to us, but he tells us the singularity of the message that is presented to us. He focuses on the method at the beginning, methods, but then he then draws our attention to the message that's communicated. And this is what I want you to think about. The message is the messenger. <laughs> you know, the message is Yeshua. That's the message he's been conveying. It is him. It's not merely a message about him, although certainly that's there. It is him. It is he who is the message. He's the messenger But he's also the message that's being presented. Now, look what he says. And he goes on to say, but in these last days, he has spoken to us by his son. Now, I want you to see this contrast. In the long ago, throughout history, God has spoken in a variety of ways and through a variety of means. He says, by the prophets, plural. But now he says, in these last days, that's in contrast to all the history that has preceded, in these last days, he has spoken to us by, notice the singularity, his son. In the prophets, plural, but here it's his son. But the Greek is really cool. 
And it's hard to explain because it's an idiomatic expression. The Greek actually says he has spoken to us in prophets. And then it says he has spoken to us son. That's all it says. He has spoken to us in son. He doesn't say by the prophets or by the son. He merely says he has spoken to us in prophets and in son. The point the writer is making is, in the past, the revelation of God has come through the prophetic offices, whether it's through an official prophet or just one that God anoints to communicate his word, like the kings and priests. So in other words, the word that, or the words of God, the revelation of God was prophetical in nature. Now, the prophets were not essential. Now, this gets a little technical, so hold on a minute and just listen to this. This is really pretty interesting to think about. The prophets were not essential. They were, theologians would say, accidental. What that means is, while God particularly anointed these men to speak, he could have anointed any man to speak. In other words, there is nothing about Isaiah that compelled God to, to appoint him. He was appointed because God chose him, not the other way around. That being the case, it was accidental. I don't mean he made an accident. I mean he was choosing on the basis of his own determination. But with regard to the son, it was not accidental. It was essential. Why was it essential? Because he is God in the flesh. That's what the writer wants to say. There's a distinction between the son and the prophets with regard to their office. The office of Messiah as prophet, priest, king is essential to his nature, not to Isaiah until he was called. Does that make sense? Prior to his calling, he's just a man. Not so the Messiah. He's always a prophet, priest, and king from the very beginning. So that's why he says he spoke to us in prophets, but now he speaks to us in son. So it's almost like he's speaking to us in a sonness way. He's speaking to us in a son-wise way. He's speaking to us in a son-oriented way. In other words, he's speaking to us messianically. You know, he's speaking to us as Messiah is what the writer is saying. He doesn't just mean to say he spoke this way, now he's speaking through this one. He's also saying the quality of this one through whom he is speaking is head and shoulders above any previous voice that ever spoke, even though they spoke the word of God. Are you following me with that? You know, he is showing his superiority by virtue of his nature and character at the very beginning of this book. And so now you raise the question, what is it about the son the Messiah of Israel, that sets him apart from all these other individuals whom God used to reveal his revelation through. He's anticipating you're going to ask this question. He's anticipating, after you've read this statement of how unique the Son is to all the prophets, now you're asking, well, what makes the Son so unique? And he gives us seven distinctions about the Son that makes him so unique. And those are the things I just want to share with you in the remaining moments that I have. So take a look at the first thing he says. The first thing he tells us is that he is, look at verse, oh, I've turned the page here, hold on. If you look at 
Verse 2, but in these last days, by the way, this phrase last days is a term used in the Hebrew scriptures to speak of the messianic age. It's a term used to use of the time when the Messiah will reign. What the writer to the Hebrews is telling us, once the Messiah appears, the messianic times have begun. They're not here in its fullness because Yeshua isn't reigning yet. But the beginning of the messianic era has already dawned. Because the Messiah has two roles to play. A priestly role where he will die and a royal role where he will reign. He's already completed the first role and therefore the messianic era has dawned upon us. At least in a limited way. Everybody with me? So when he says last days, he doesn't mean, oh, the Lord's coming tomorrow. When he wrote this in 64, 65 A.D. He doesn't mean the last days, meaning in the last days in which the Bible is being written. He means the days of Messiah are upon us. Don't miss him and don't miss out on obeying him and thereby being blessed by him. So he tells us seven things. The first thing he tells us is that he is the heir of all things. Well, in order to be the heir of all things, you have to be God. Because only God has control or it has ownership of all things. You and I may be entrusted with some things, but the Son, Yeshua, the Messiah, has all things. To have all things, you must be equal with God. It's just like we said before, to have all power, all presence, all wisdom, if you're omniscient, omnipresent, omnipotent, all things, you must be God. And so if you have all things, well, then everything belongs to you. And if everything belongs to you, there's nothing that doesn't belong to you. And so if there's nothing that doesn't belong to you and you own all things, you must be God because he's the only one that has all things. But now here's the other thing about these things that he has. He is the heir of them. Now that's really a unique term. See, when someone passes away and if they are not member of your family and they leave it to you, you know you're not an heir, right? You have been, here we go again, I don't know if I've ever pronounced this word right, but you have been bequeathed or bequeathed, bequeathed something. You have been given a bequest, not a, not a request, a bequest, right? But an heir doesn't get a bequest or is bequeathed. <laughs> he inherits what belongs to him. An heir gets what is rightly his, not what is bequeathed to him. So the writer is very clear. He's not just an inheritor of all things. He's the heir. And in order to be the heir, he must be family. And in order to be family, he must be identified identically with. This is a statement as on the surface as insignificant as it appears. It is all significant because he's telling us he is worthy to be listened to. The reason his message and he as the message and messenger is head and shoulders above all that is preceded is because he's God, because he's the heir of all things, and because he is the one who only has the right to them. Isn't that remarkable? This is a little phrase. I mean, I'm telling you, this writer 
is something else. Secondly, he tells us not only is he the heir of all things, but he tells us he made the worlds. Now, the word worlds here does not mean the universe. This is not the word cosmos, which is the Greek word for universe. This is the word ionos, which is the word for ages. What he's telling us is this one made reality. This is the one that called into being history. You know? This is the one that called into being time and space that makes reality possible. When he says the ages, all time spans, he has made possible. All that exists and all that exists in the existence of what he has made, he is the maker of. Isn't that like cr- crazy? You know? He is the maker of all the ages, not merely all the things that we see. He's the creator of the place in which we can see all the things that we're capable of seeing. And it goes further than that. Because he's the creator of history, it means he's the one that's moving time along and the events in time along. So where is he moving them along to? To a goal. And what's the goal to which he's bringing everything along to? It is his reign as king and as Lord. That's why at the end of the ages, he's called Lord of Lords and King of all kings. Not only does he say that, but check this out. He not only says he's the heir of all things. He not only says he's the creator of the ages, but he is the radiance of the glory of God. Now, I had been reading some, some writers on this theme. And back in the fourth century was one of my favorite early writers, early church leaders. And his name was Athanasius. He lived in Alexandria. And, you know, there was that phrase that has become well-known, Athanasius contra mundo, Athanasius against the world. Because Athanasius was a brave man of God. And at a time when all of the believers scattered throughout the world were debating over the nature of the Messiah, he was a lone voice that stepped up to the plate and said, you know what, I don't care what any of you say. I don't care whether you lead the congregation in Rome or in Constantinople or in Antioch. He was in Alexandria. You are all wrong about what the scriptures are teaching regarding the nature of Messiah. He is indeed God come in the flesh. He stood against all the opposition, and these were very powerful and very learned individuals. And to this day, it is his words that have risen to the fore and to which we all honor and aspire. He said this, to give you an idea of the kind of man and thinker he was, he said this about... Messiah being the radiance of God's glory. He said, who does not see that the brightness cannot be separated from the light, but that it is by nature proper to it and coexistent with it and is not produced after it. In other words, his point is that when you have light, you have radiance. You cannot have one without the other. 
And therefore, where you have the father, you have the son. And the reason you cannot have them distinct as such is because they are both uniquely glorious. And that's because they are both uniquely God, (laughs) however you want to express that. It was another thinker who said, think not that there ever was a moment of time when light existed without radiance. I kind of like those ideas. They're very philosophical in nature. It doesn't mull them over in your mind a little bit. But the idea is if he's the radiance of glory, they must coexist at the same time. You cannot have glory and radiance. But the focus upon these words is Messiah was the Shekinah glory. That's what he's saying. Wherever the Shekinah glory is, that's where Messiah is. And that's what we see even in the life of Messiah. The star that led the Magi was the Shekinah glory. He was born in Bethlehem. So what does the Shekinah glory do? It brings them to where Messiah is because the Shekinah glory is the glory of Messiah. In fact, John tells us as much. Take a look at John chapter 1. And these are somewhat complicated thoughts, complicated truths, but they are glorious ones. And, they, and the writer is trying to tell us this is why he is so unique and therefore must be listened to and why his words are head and shoulders above all other words that have been uttered. If you look at chapter 1 in John's uh, account, he says in verse 9 about Messiah that he is the true light, which gives light to everyone coming into the world. And then he says, the word Messiah became flesh. He dwelt among us. That's the Hebrew, a Greek word from the Hebrew word Mishkan, which means to tabernacle. We're getting ready to celebrate the Feast of Tabernacles. John is saying that the word became flesh and he tabernacled among us. He mishkaned among us. By the way, the word mishkan is where we get the word shekinah from as well. They're all interrelated terms. And so he says, the word became flesh. He dwelt among us. And what? We have seen his glory. Glory as only as of the only son from the father, full of grace and truth. So that's John's point as well. That Messiah is the Shekinah glory and that when he was seen, the brilliance of that glory was radiated and made known. So why ought we listen to him? He's the one who is the Shekinah glory in all of its brilliance. It's the Shekinah glory is really a reflection of the very glory of Messiah. That's why at the ascension, it says a bright cloud received him into their out from their sight in Acts chapter 1 when he ascends into heaven. It's a cloud, the Shekinah, that receives him. That's why on the Mount of the Transfigurations, there's a bright cloud overshadowed them. And then the Father spoke from that bright cloud. And that's why at the cross, the Shekinah glory departed. And that's why for the space of three hours while he was carrying our sin, it turned to darkness. And that's why when Messiah comes, the Shekinah glory will reappear. He says in Matthew chapter 25 that the sign of the Son of Man will appear in the heavens. Well, what kind of sign ever appears in the heavens? It's the Shekinah glory. That's the sign of the coming of the Son of Man to reign over the earth. And when you look at Isaiah chapter 4, you'll see in the Messianic age, the Shekinah glory hovers over the entire city of Jerusalem. Because Messiah now is present and he's reigning. And the writer is saying he is the radiance of the glory of God. We haven't haven't gotten through this all, but take a look. Let's see if we can just highlight a couple of things here. He tells us not only is he the radiance, but he's the exact imprint of his nature. He's the exact expression of his nature. That word imprint is the word that's used to speak of 
the use of a dye tool to cast the image on the coins made in the first century. So he's saying he's the exact representation. He's exactly what God is. And so he is the, um, as, as he mentions, he is the exact imprint of his very nature. Not only does he say that, but he says this, he upholds the universe by the word of his power. He sustains the universe. Colossians chapter 1 tells us he is the sustainer of all that is. He holds all things together. But he does this by the word of his power. This is a different word than the word word in John 1. In John 1, it's lagos. But here it's rhema. The word rhema means the spoken word. And so this is a throwback to Genesis chapter 1. God spoke and it was said. Let so, it was so. Let there be light. And there was light. In other words, the same way God created, created the universe is the same way Messiah holds all things together. He just says, hold together, and it holds together. If he ever said, let go, everything flies apart. But because he holds it together by his word, he just speaks it, and our universe stays together, and everything else that is made. And sixthly, he says, he provided purification for sins. He's also our redeemer. He's purified us from our sins. And he has uniquely purified us for, from our sins. He has purified us, first of all, his redemption, his atonement. He tells us is an exclusive atonement. No one else helped him in his work of redemption. He did it by himself on the cross. And so he alone provides redemption for sin. So in that sense, it's exclusive. It is solely his work in our behalf. Not only is it solely his work, but it is also a work that is eternal in nature. In the Greek, when it says he purified our sins, he uses what's referred to as the aorist tense. In Greek, the aorist tense is something we don't have in English. It's a, it's a way in which you can say something in a point of time and it extends for all of eternity. So when it says here that he purified us from our sin or cleansed us, it means at a point in time, he's provided the cleansing and it goes on forever. So his work is a completed atonement. Therefore, it doesn't need to be repeated. He has done it, it is finished, and now it is for us to receive what he has done. And then lastly, he says, not only has he provided purification for sins, but then he sat down at the right hand of the Father, at the right hand on high. Notice the first six all have to do with what he's provided at his first coming, or I should say in his earthly ministry. The last one has to do in his ascension at the conclusion. In other words, his being raised to the right hand means that all the work that he's done was accepted by the Father. And to sit at the Father's right hand means that he is equal with him. So he's finished the work, he has sat down. And he has sat down at the right hand of the Father because he is equivalent to him and equal to him. So in answer to the question, why should we listen to his voice? 
because he stands apart from all others. He is, our heir. he is the heir of all things. He's the creator of all the ages. He's the sustainer of all that is. He's the one that's provided redemption for us. He is the radiance of God's glory. He is the very presence of the Shekinah's presence. And he is at the right hand of the Father. There is no other voice we ought to listen to other than those that spoke before of his coming And of him himself who speaks to us. And he speaks to us not verbally, but through his work. His his message is what he has done. And our responsibility is to listen to what he has done and to receive it. So now in concluding, let me just say this. In the Brit Tadashah, the New Covenant Scriptures, there's only three places where the voice of God is mentioned. We're talking about the voice of God. In long ago, God spoke in prophets, and in these days, in his son. His voice is speaking. In the Brit HaRashah, there are three places where God's voice is heard. The first is in Matthew chapter 3, verse 15. Yochanan, his herald, immerses him in the Jordan River. He does this to fulfill all righteousness, not to deal with any of his sin. Something we can't talk about right now. But he did this to fulfill all righteousness. And when he does, the voice of God speaks. And he says, this is my beloved son in whom I am well pleased. The second time is in Matthew chapter 17, verse 5 or so. And it's there that on the Mount of the Transfiguration, he's transfigured in all of his glory. And Peter says, let us set set up sukkahs. Let us set up booths. We're going to do that next week. Set up sukkah booths here. His thinking was, we have entered the Messianic age, and there is Moses and Elijah and the Messiah of Israel. And then a voice from heaven, God speaks and says, this is my beloved son. Listen to him. And the third time he speaks is in John chapter 12, verse 28. Let me read that to you just to make sure I get it straight. And in John chapter 12, verse 28, Yeshua says, Now is my soul troubled, and what shall I say? Father, save me from this hour. But for this purpose I have come to this hour. Father, glorify your name. Then a voice came from heaven. I have glorified it, and I will glorify it again. The crowd that stood there and heard it said that it had thundered. Others said an angel has spoken to him. But Yeshua said, and here's the phrase I want you to think about. The voice has come for your sake, not mine. When the father speaks, whether it's at the time of his immersion, whether it's the time of its transfiguration or at the time that we just read, it is not for Yeshua's sake. He knows who he is. He knows what he must do, and he knows where he is going, the right hand of the Father. It is for our sake that we would not miss the one that the prophet spoke about and the one who has provided his life for us. You have heard, and I have heard, his voice this morning as well. Not from me, but from the words that were read And by his own prompting of his spirit in your heart, in response to the things you might have heard me say. My encouragement to you, my admonition to you, my plead with you, is that you do not ignore his voice. 
but that you respond to it. I want to give you an opportunity to respond to it this morning. So let's pray. Thank you for listening to our message. We hope that it serves to encourage you in your walk with the Lord and your service to Him. Do remember us in your prayers, and if you are able to provide a financial donation to Beth Ariel with a large or small, would you prayerfully consider sending a gift in support of our ministry? You can donate online through our website at BethAriel.org. That is spelled B-E-T-H-A-R-I-E-L dot org. Thank you again, and may our Heavenly Father richly bless you as you continue to follow Him. Shalom, shalom.